Hello, and welcome to the inaugural transmission of the Indivisible Podcast with Jim Skinner, a companion for building compassionate communities. This podcast is brought to you by the Adler Center, a nonprofit organization providing education, workshops, and affordable counseling located at 440 2184 West Broadway. If you enjoy what you hear today, sign up for the newsletter at adlercenter.ca. Here at the podcast, we encourage listener participation. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter to request topics, ask questions, and join in on the discussion. It's a beautiful rainy Sunday here in downtown Vancouver. Let's get started. We'll begin by introducing the team. Our fearless leader, Mr. Jim Skinner. After retiring from a 38-year stint in public education, Jim is now executive director of the Adler Center. Jim has taught Adlerian principles at a postgraduate level, created lectures, seminars, and workshops, and facilitated parenting classes for the past 30 years. He is a co-founder of the Indivisible Movement. Hello, Jim. How are you today? Pretty darn good, yeah. A little jet-lagged. I've just come back from Vienna, the home of uh, Freud and Adler. Ah, perfect. Fitting. And then to my right... We have Autumn Woods. Hey, how's it going? Musician, content creator, and founder of the Relatives Podcast Network, as well as his own podcast, Big Truth, with Autumn Woods. How are you today, Autumn? I'm good, I'm good. I'm really excited about this podcast. Yes, I'm very excited myself. And I am Stephen Mill, communication student, Adler Center intern, and co-producer, along with Autumn. Uh, you left out the fact that you're also a recipient of parents who were uh, trained in Adlerian Ah, uh, yes, uh, yes, my parents. Uh, probably 25 of my 27 years ago were, uh, were getting taught by this guy to my left. I was saying he's a, he's a product of your work. Yes, <laughs> yes, I'm very proud of his, uh, yeah. how it turned out. Excellent, yeah. excellent. You should be. <laughs> All righty, well, uh, we'll start. Today's topic will be Adlerian psychology and parenting. So it's a, right. it's a very, it's our first podcast, so this is where we'll put kind of a, a, a main introduction to the, the topics that we will continue to talk about throughout the, right. the, the coming months. So uh, maybe uh, I could just describe the, uh, the Wednesday night meeting at the Café Central yeah. in, uh, in Vienna. So at that meeting, typically uh, in around, say, uh, 1905, would have been uh, Sigmund Freud, uh, Leon Trotsky, Adler, some people from the kindergarten movement seem to mm-hmm. be there, uh, and other people involved in physics uh, at the time. And they were perceiving the beginning of a new renaissance. And so, uh, but what's more important about this discussion at, on Wednesday night was a big, uh, w- w- how we'll put it, a, a big conflict arose. And uh, the central piece of that conflict was, of course, that um, Trotsky would have said, you know, come the revolution and everyone has a tractor, we're all going to be happy and free. And uh, that kind of idea. And, and of course, Freud said it was, it was biological, it was instinctual. And that's just the way it was. And, uh, and, and so it was a very biologically based view. Whereas uh, Adler said, no. Uh, well, and of course, if we were thinking in terms of political, well, there's an election in Canada. So if we're thinking political terms. We'd say Trotsky's more the, the, uh, on the side of the uh, kind of social equality, create a, a, mm. a, an environment of equal opportunity, and it'll all work out. And, and Freud would be more like the conservatives that had a lot more to do with your genetic, biological end of things. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the liberals who, uh, who are kind of say, well, it's, no, it's neither. It's a combination of both. Yeah. 
And Adler would be sitting there saying, no, you're all wrong. <laughs> Adler would be saying, no, it's not what you've got, what social situation you're born into or what biology you've got, but it's what you've done with it. So it was a psychology of use. It's what you do with what you got. Mm-hmm. And that involved making decisions about your behavior. So that was a big, big decision there. Did you imagine going back in time and just witnessing the brain power that would have been at that table on Wednesday nights? Right? Oh, yeah. Just, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. It, would have been, it would have been really something. Yeah. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah I, I just, yeah, when I was sitting in the cafe, I was imagining them sitting around. Uh, there's pictures on the wall, and there's one with, actually, Adolf Hitler was there at one time, and he, Freud in here having this conversation. Wow. And, and it's quite, it, yeah, there's a large, old, grainy fo- photo of them there on the wall. It's quite something. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, that must have been a wonderful, wonderful... Were you there on vacation, or were you I there, was there at there a conference. Ah. I was there at a conference, and uh, called... See, the international movement that Adler started uh, was called uh, uh, the, uh, the sort of the Association of Individual Psychology. And, uh, so, it, and, and so he started that back in the, in the uh, 1920s. Mm-hmm. And so that emerged at that time. The, see, Freud and Adler were, were students of a fellow called Friedrich Nietzsche, and uh, Friedrich Nietzsche came up with a wonderful idea of the will to power, oh. that we have this uh, capacity to, to uh, you know, influence things directly. And, uh, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, Freud saw that as the will to dominate, mm-hmm. to control, which, um, uh, of course, Nietzsche's uh, uh, daughter, took, who was a, was a member of the, of the Nazi party, took that idea to Hitler and said, you know, the will to power is the will to dominate. And so it, it being his whole rationale of his own mythology around the white supremacy at that time was that we had that natural will to do that. Uh, whereas, and Freud kind of saw it as a domination of of people over others, and he saw, you know, the whole Oedipus complex, the, mm-hmm. the man wants to, uh, uh, the son wants to kill the father to be with the mother, and uh, vice versa, the Electra complex uh, uh, with women. And, uh, and, and his, the reason that women are so angry in the in Victorian uh, uh, Europe was because the men, the men are, 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 uh, are dominating. The women don't have the penis, and that's why <laughs> penis envy, he called it. <laughs> and so Adler said, no, it's not like that. Women are annoyed because, angry, because men are dominating and women are, are subjective, mm-hmm. subject to that. And so that was, Gap produced the anger with women at the time. So, uh, so Adler came along with the idea that it wasn't will, will to power. Yes, that was true, but it was the will to overcome the difficulties of disease, of economic problems, uh, social problems, all could be dealt with um, through using our will to power. From what I read, um, the, uh, Adler had a lot of problems when he, when he moved over to the States, didn't he? Because the States was so Freudian that, that yes. he, he had quite a bit of resistance, from what I understand. Yeah, see, I, I, my, the sad part is that, is that Adler was not a great writer. Anybody who's read any German translations know that this, the sentence begins at the top of the page and ends at the bottom. Well, Adler was kind of in that category. Um, it was not a, the kind of writer. Freud was a brilliant science fiction writer. <laughs> and, it, and because he used mythology a lot, it, appe- it really appealed a lot to the writers. And so his, his ideas were amplified, whereas Adler, in his humble way, was uh, just 
speaking his wisdom, which was we now know in these times was he had it bang on. Because one of Adler's central ideas is that we are social beings. Mm -hmm. We are, uh, as we would say, as Daniel Goldman would say, uh, or, or uh, Dan Siegel would say, that we are hardwired neurologically to connect with each other. We're social beings. And Adler said that's a primary thing, is that we're, we're, we, we are wired to belong. Everyone chooses to belong. Mm -hmm. And so when we are a little dwarf amongst all these giants, as a child, it's counterintuitive that we're good enough to belong. So then we make up a whole story about how I'm going to belong. I'm going to be the, the most talented musician. I'm going to be the smartest kid in the class. I'm going to be the most athletic. I'm going to be the prettiest. These were ways we were going to try and overcome and compensate for our feelings of inferiority. Ah. To be human is to have feelings of inferiority. So we make up a story, a fiction, about how we're going to belong. Wow. And that can, has both strengths and it has things in that that hinder us as human beings. It sounds like Adlerian psychology has a bit more of an open-minded perspective where it's, it's willing to take a little bit from all these different areas and find the middle ground, whereas a lot of the other things that were bigger at that time had very clear-cut rules, which made it, made it easier to understand. I, w I, would, I would frame it out like this. I would say that if we think the, of a tree, you've got this giant trunk, which is Adlerian psychology. And then you've got various branches, uh, everything from narrative therapy, logotherapy of Viktor Frankl uh, that comes out of that. Uh, you've got uh, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. You've got positive psychology. All those are just uh, branches on this giant trunk that Adler had created because he was the guy who had a, an incredibly deep understanding mm -hmm. of this whole topic of human psychology. And he... He saw it holistically. He did not see the individual as separate from the environment they're in. So to understand a person, you have to understand the larger context of what they're... Because nothing exists in a vacuum. Because everything's indivisible. Mm. Ah. <laughs> That's the name of the podcast. <laughs> there you go. Would you be... Could you go in, just for the people who are new to Adlerian psychology, uh -huh. about what you would consider to be the main principles of it and what separates it from other viewpoints? Well, it's hard to say what separates it because so many have embraced yeah. Adler's pr mm -hmm. principles cause just because he was first. Yeah. And so I would say some of the key things that he would say is that human beings are hardwired to belong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Belonging is with social animals. Uh, secondly, that we, uh, we are not pushed by our, our, our genetics or, or pushed by our social situation uh, so much as we're pulled by a vision we have for ourselves. So what, in other words, it's goal-oriented. We have a vision of what we want, and we move towards that. And uh, back, as I was saying earlier, we create a fiction, a story about how we're going to belong, and we're pulled towards that. So it's our movement towards it at all times. That's the second thing. Adler was very big on democracy. He was a democratic thinker. He thought that it was the uh, it, as probably Winston Churchill put it best, is that it, it's not a perfect system, it's the best we got. Mm -hmm. He saw that as the greatest opportunity for most people. So he was very big on a democratic world. He was very big on um, mutual respect. So uh, I respect you, you respect me. And in, in terms of parenting, just to really concretely, it's being firm and kind at the same time. The Zen of parenting, as Adler would say, would be being firm and kind at the same time, not kind now and then firm later or firm now and then when they're doing and being obedient, 
than were kind. Mm -hmm. He would see obedience as a sin. He would see compliance as a sin because that happens between unequals. People are of equal value is another Adler principle. We're all of equal value. Mm -hmm. We're different, as Bono would say, we're one but not the same. Mm. We are different. And so Adler's idea would be that we're, that, that idea of firm and kind at the same time means that I'm respecting me by being firm to my boundaries and, and kind and I'm respecting you. So it's that mutual respect is a key principle. Of Which is also uh, important in, in, in therapy and counseling situations because of a space of safe, judgment-free zone, right? Absolutely, Because yeah. you, it's... From my understanding, I think it's it's incredibly hard to break ground when one person is subservient to the other because mm. you're not, you don't. It, it's a mutual respect thing. If you if you're not going to listen to somebody that you don't feel respects you and vice versa, and you're not going to really enjoy, like you're not going to really enjoy the conversation and really gain kind of a, the catharsis from it without being on the same level. I feel. Yeah. So the the other part of that, of course, is that in the, when you are not uh, on the top but feeling subservient, then uh, the, whoever's feeling in the down position immediately uh, starts to feel beginnings of resentment, and over time that resentment lashes out mm-hmm. in some form or another, either leaks out or <coughs> explodes, because no one likes to be even a child in a down position. Mm. Everyone likes to feel being of equal value. And so that's the real trick of being a parent uh, is to f- feel that you're working together. And children are very intuitive, right? Like even if they don't understand the feelings that they're feeling yet, they understand being in a down position. Absolutely. Kids pick up on that pretty quickly. Yeah. Yes, even though they don't have the cognitive uh, capacity to frame it that way. I, I have a strong belief that the best way to deal with younger people is to not patronize them, is to treat them as an equal and allow them to work up to say, if you're using language that they don't quite understand, don't talk to them like a child. Use that language and allow them to ask you, hey, what do you mean? And let them take the opportunity to grow in their own way. And I, I guess that really works in line with Adlerian yeah, principles. That's totally, that would be a very Adlerian way of looking at it, for sure. Yeah, is that, that you see children as equals. Although children, you see, they need two things. They need both freedom and order. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people confuse being equal, giving them lots of freedom, and they'll figure it out. But if you, if you don't provide structure, some order to their lives, it creates chaos in their heads. And as a result of that, uh, you've got kids that are chaotic in their thinking and, and out of control. And so kids need both that structure, which and the order, but the difference is imposing structure is autocratic, whereas negotiating that structure is democratic. So you negotiate that depending on the level uh, and the age of the child, you provide that for them, yeah. Well, it's very, this is a very interesting topic for me because I mean, I obviously don't have any children, but my friends are all starting to to Uh get pregnant and uh, are starting to have children. So it's very interesting, especially in this in this time and age, to see what the next generation that will be raised by my friends, (laughs) you know, (laughs) to see how they how they raise children and how 
their techniques, <clears throat> and I think that they're going to need parenting classes. Yeah. Honestly, some of my friends, <laughs> yeah. you know. Well, we tend to, we tend to parent the way we were parented. Mm-hmm. We tend to copy what was done. It's like teachers tend to teach the way they were taught. Mm. So unless you uh, set out with the intention of creating a new tradition, uh, you're going to end up parenting the way you're parenting. In other, in other words, unless you intentionally set out to create a more democratic style of parenting, you end up either in a laissez-faire, do your own thing, or you end up in a very autocratic, uh, when I say jump, there's only one question. Mm. I, know, I feel like a lot of <clears throat> my friends' parents raised them in that way of, you, you need to do what I say, I know better. But we exist in a world now where nobody really knows better because everything is changing so quickly because the social media age, the internet age, like everyone's even more on equal ground than ever before. And so parenting needs to be a collaboration. So I think now more than ever, Adlerian principles need to come into play. The, yes, and you're hitting, you're touching, when you speak, but you're touching me with something that's very near and dear to me, and that's the whole idea of empathy and having a sense of community. Mm. And uh, what I see is a thinning out and disappearing of community mm. in the world. And that's, uh, if we're social beings, as Adler has said, we need community. And community isn't something you can organize because then you've got an organization. <laughs> it isn't a team because that's a team. It isn't an interest group. You know, it, it isn't a consumer group. Uh, a community is something that's very different than that. And it's something that you can hold the space for community to emerge, but you can't actually start organizing community because then you again, back into organization. Mm-hmm. So how do we have a society that allows us to hold community for each other so that people can enter into that as equals? Mm. Back to your point, equality. <clears throat> it's interesting. In a lot of my own work, what I'm striving to do is to create those communities. And the way that I've been doing that is, like you said, holding a space for people to come, but not telling people how to show up in these events that I'm right. planning, not telling people what to do, just saying, if you want to come spend time with us, do that. Yeah. yeah. So that's why, Andrew, we even back in 1905 would be sitting here and what you're saying would resonate with him because we be saying that's exactly right. Cool. What we're attempting to do is to create a sense of community in which everyone belongs. I mean, uh, I think the way a lot of our public, I've spent uh, 38 years in public education and I can tell you that what drove me a lot was, I'm going to tell a little story about kindergarten. <laughs> I was uh, raised on a farm, a dairy farm. Uh, outside of Vancouver, Richmond. And uh, I'd get on the tram, and two tram stations up on, on would get Terry. And he would get on, and we'd kind of sit together and, and kick the, the back of the seat together, that sort of thing as five-year-olds do. And we got to kindergarten, and uh, Mrs. Dick would pick us up. She was the kindergarten teacher at the, at the tram station, and we'd all trottle down to her, her kindergarten, which at that time was not public. And so in the backyard was magical. She had swings, she had a sandbox, she had trees to climb, and she had a fish pond with goldfish in it. So as five-year-olds, or four-and-a-half, five-year-olds are running through her backyard, I push, in my enthusiasm, my friend Terry into the pond. (laughs) Now, this is an incredible, important (laughs) moment in my life and probably has shaped me a lot. Because what happened was that as Terry's falling into the pond, I could see startle and then the beginning of tears but everyone kind of stopped and looked and started laughing so by the time he hit the water and stood up he too was laughing 
And I saw all that as a five-year-old. And back to your point about intuitiveness. Mm -hmm. I saw that, so we went inside. He got dried up, and we sat there, and I, uh, at, at, at juice time, I, I gave him my cookies. When coloring came up, I sat beside him, and I get, let him choose whatever colors he wanted to, for his crayons. I did what I could to make up for my uh, upsetting him. And next year in grade one, we're in the same class, and he's sitting right next to me, right beside me. And uh, he, Terry was a, a very uh, kind of advanced boy for, uh, for his age, and he could print and read and do all these things, whereas I was off the farm, and I was putting in two hours of work before I ever got to school. And so uh, that wasn't a thing. So, so I'm asking Terry something about how to print a cue or something, and I hear, Jimmy, stop talking to Terry. <laughs> yes. And so I stopped, and uh, uh, a little while later, I heard another boy named Larry get yelled at a couple times. And then in the afternoon, she brought Larry up to the front of the class, and she bent him over, and she gave him a, a good beating with the yardstick. Wow. And he's whimpering back to his seat, because he'd been talking out loud to another student one too many times. The other part that separated us was that there were three reading groups. Okay, there was the Bluebirds. They're really good readers. The Robins, and then my group, the Buzzards. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was called the Buzzards, but in my mind, they were. Yeah. <laughs> That's who they were. It's apt. It's, it was, yeah. So, again, Terry was in the Rob, er, in, no, not, he was in the Bluebird group. So, another distance. So, by the end of uh, the second week of school, Terry was in a different class of people than me. Uh, and distance was created in my mind. So I wasn't as smart. I w couldn't get his help. I, you know, although I was good in other ways, athletically and in some other ways, I could sing really well. It wasn't going to be a friendship. And it wasn't until baseball showed up a few years later that we reconnected as, as friends. Hmm. This was created by the distance of school. So empathy that I had in kindergarten naturally. By the way, Mrs. Dick, when I uh, pushed Terry into the pond, but she said, now, Jimmy, yes, Mrs. Dick, we don't push people into the pond, yes, Mrs. Dick, because it scares the fish. <laughs> <laughs> like that, she put it right there, and I said, I think said, that's I, oddly profound. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, no, it is, because I immediately thought, She's right. It does scare the fish. <laughs> she didn't. It, it, she made help bring an attention uh, something, and she didn't blame me. Didn't shame me. She just said what it was doing to the fish. Yeah. And uh, and and that was good enough for me. And and it didn't create distance between Terry and I. In fact, it allowed me to step in, and 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 try and uh, provide some compensation to Terry for what I had done to him. Well, that's a very, in interesting, a very interesting example, and the fact that it stayed with you after all these years as well is, is quite something. I think, that, I think that that's a great example of, of I guess, good, good, I mean, she's not a parent, but good teaching practices, yes, right? It, it's, it's about empathy and encouraging mm -hmm. empathy in people. Mm -hmm. uh, the in fact, Adler's definitely, no, actually, his, uh, his partner in crime, a fellow called Rudolf Dreikers, who, uh, they were both doctors in Vienna and both in the world, First World War together and became fast friends after the war, he def defined mental health not as the absence of illness, as we would say. He defined mental health at, as the capacity to care for the cares of others. Think about mm -hmm. that, the capacity mm -hmm. to care for the cares the of others. The ability to. 
Interesting. Yeah. So, so that idea of empathy for others, compassion for others. Mm. And so my idea of community is developing compassionate community. There's all kinds of communities that uh, are tight and strong, and some of them are even, in my judgment, uh, I would use the word evil. Mm-hmm. But a compassionate community is a very different thing. Mm. I see so many parallels between Adlerian psychology and Buddhism. Uh, I practiced Buddhism for a while with a community in Vancouver. And so many of the things you're talking about, about compassionate community and being like having to create connections with other people and yourself in equal parts and being loving with yourself and others and firm simultaneously are things that I learned through Buddhism. And it's just interesting to see these parallels. Well, Adler didn't have the same advantage that you and I have to, to Eastern thought. Mm. I mean, I started practicing Transcendental Meditation when I was 18 and then became a teacher of Transcendental Meditation uh, in 1970. So um, I am fully uh, ex- experientially understand the idea that I'm both uh, uh, part of everything and experientially unique. Mm-hmm. So I have that experience of those two things at the same time. And having that experience uh, just resonates, again, that word resonates, uh, with the work of Adler. It's like Adler was providing uh, the social uh, structure and ideas for what Buddhism provides and what, uh, in my case, uh, the Vedic tradition of transcendental meditation provides. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting that you raised that. I agree. Totally interesting. I think one of my favorite, when it comes to parenting, uh, I think one of my favorite ideas from the Adlerian teachings was to, uh, is it encouragement, not... Praise. Not praise. Yeah, Yeah. that was something that was really interesting to me because it it connects to the, the idea that we are all one, but also our own kind of subjective creature, right? right? Because uh, the way I think about it is, is, is... Praising somebody puts puts it's less mutual respect and puts people on different uh, right. levels. Right. So I, you two are brothers, and I say your younger brother. I say to him, you know, that's just a beautiful piece of work you've painted. It's wonderful. The colors, the, the you know, there's a whole you've covered the page in this beautiful, beautiful drawing. You think we should put this on the fridge? It's just the best drawing that I've ever seen come into this house. Mm-hmm. And as my so- younger son, you would say, sure, daddy, put it on the fridge. That makes you feel good, but how do you think your older brother, Stephen, would feel? Definitely less, because he may not have heard it like yeah, that. Uh, yeah, and, and how do you feel towards your brother? <coughs> Animosity. Exactly. That's the problem with the whole thing about uh, up and down, that vertical versus the horizontal. Mm-hmm. The vertical is all about uh, praise, uh, reward and punishment, that whole system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, uh, reward systems has a lot to do with the dopamine system, which is part of the whole addictive nature of our society mm-hmm. now. This is a little side note I'm putting in there. Yeah. But the main point is encouragement is what you're just saying, Stephen, which is that you're saying, well, let's just try this. Uh, okay, so uh, this is your younger brother again. Gee, uh, uh, look at what you've done here today. You've, you've got four colors on there. And you, yesterday you only had two, and you, you covered about a third of the page yesterday. This day, today, you've got at least half the page covered. How are you feeling about your, your artwork today? Great. We're making some progress. Yeah. How are you feeling about your younger brother's work? I think he's doing well. I think it's, it's, it's yeah, I think that's... that's yeah, so, so, uh, so I'm, not, uh, I'm not comparing. Yeah. I'm not setting up a better 
worst kind of thing. It's taking off the vertical and onto the horizontal. And that's what encouragement does. It gives a encouragement, putting curry, which is French word heart, giving mm-hmm. you courage to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's the number one job of a parent. It's interesting because it also fosters that community because it allows everybody to be to feel equal and it gets rid of comparison even though the conversations between you and one child, you have to know the other child will hear it, will, be, will feel things from it. Yes. It's being thoughtful to the whole group, not just to exactly. one. Exactly. And, and, and the, the part of that too is that, yes, by, by using the language of encouragement, and, which is basically noting effort and improvement mm. and, and giving that sense that you're part of us just by being you, you're moving from the ego place of up and down vertical, which is that striving to be good enough to belong, and you're moving it to an assuming you already belong, and it's a matter of what do I bring to the task of schoolwork, or if you're an adult, work, <coughs> what do I bring to the task of friendship, the task of intimacy, the task of self-development, to the task of uh, cosmic or spiritual life. You see those as tasks. You move it from being about me, which mm-hmm. is an ego place, to a place of we or us. And what do I bring to us, to the community? I personally relate to the idea of, of vertical, as, at horizontal as opposed to vertical, just because it's it's so easy to get discouraged when you think of something as constantly moving up that you might get knocked down a couple of rungs of the ladder Mm. and then or maybe all fall all the way down and have to start again but we're never actually starting again we're always moving forward we're always we're not we might move a little to the left a little to the right and we might you know be a little bit uh rambunctious and but we're always moving forward and we're always bettering ourselves it's very very interesting but even folks that are moving forward if they're on that vertical don't they're in a position of, um, well, there's a really good example. Uh, the older folks in the audience will appreciate There's a, fe- a president of the United States called Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. And I had a professor, yeah, Ray Lowe, from uh, Oregon, <laughs> who, uh, who went to uh, a, a very high-end uh, East Coast uh, uh, private college with him. And they're both in the same drama club. And uh, uh, Richard was uh, brilliant. He could. Uh, he ha- was off book in no time at all. He had to play memorized. But in the two years there in that drama club, he never got any kind of part at all because he had no capacity for empathy for the character. Mm. He was so concerned and so his feelings of inferiority were so deep and profound uh, that he was always striving for superiority. And so Ray followed him throughout his uh, career, and he said even when he was at the height of his popularity, even when he, you know, he was reassured to be elected in Gideon, he committed a crime because inside he, he still didn't believe he was good enough. Self-sabotage. Self-sabotage. Well, it's, that's, well, that's what can happen. The point being, though, that even though you can be in the highest, most powerful <coughs> position in the world at that time, you can still have deep feelings of inferiority mm-hmm. as long as you're on the vertical because you're still striving to overcome those feelings of inferiority. You're never getting to that sense of being on the vertical and belonging mm-hmm. and bringing to the task of being the work of being president, d- doing it the best job you can at that. You're just constantly worried about your feelings. It's a very, that's a very interesting story. That's a great uh, comparison there. Yeah. Um, it brings up two things for me. Uh-huh. The first thing that brings up is it's, it seems like Adlerian psychology, and I'm sh- it seems like 
there's no people who are born negative or born evil that there's a reason for every single like for for example somebody like Richard Nixon who was mm-hmm. in a place of power and committed a crime it's because of a feeling of inferiority it's is it because people feel unhappy with themselves that they commit they, dastardly well, deeds they feel not good enough mm-hmm. and uh, as a result uh, we live in the age of narcissism largely and so you're seeing people being much more and more self-centered because of their fear of not being good enough, not belonging. Mm. Um, I know in our counseling clinic, we see a lot of uh, anxious young people, anxiety being one of the key reasons they show up. And that's because FOMO, fear of missing out, shows up a lot, and the anxiety that, it, that emerges out of that. So that sense of not being part of, not belonging, fear of not belonging, the fear of missing out, ends up being a huge piece of why they end up in counseling. Is that growing more and more? It's exponentially growing. Wow. Yes, yeah. the, going through the roof. Yeah. So um, I, I think Adler's idea also involves the idea that uh, we're not born uh, evil. We're born with either a sense, we are born naturally with a sense of empathy, a sense of capacity to care for the cares of others. Mm-hmm. But if it's, my analogy would be if you took a person and put, locked them in the basement from the time they're born and leave them there till they're an adolescent, they'll never learn to talk. Mm. If, so uh, one, of the, one of the roles of a parent is help children to develop that empathy. Mm-hmm. What's required is a compassionate family community to, as a starting point. Mm-hmm. And that's where, that's where the whole idea of, of coming into uh, uh, the idea of coming into community gets developed and that sense of empathy comes about is in the family. Interesting. And my second point that that brought up, the Nixon uh-huh. story brought up, was would you say that our current like social, political, and economic climate is enforcing people to view the world in this up-and-down, vertical sort of struggle? Yes, because in the level of insanity of, of competition, mm. or the competition has created the insanity, that vertical is just stretching out in front of us. Either I'm pulling, back to Stephen's point, pull either I'm pulling you down so I can get past you, mm. or I'm kicking your, your, your fingernails as you, on the rung of that ladder to keep you from getting past me. Mm-hmm. So, that, so in that vertical system, everybody's your enemy because it's a highly competitive view. In competition, winners and losers either, so in the end, everybody's your enemy. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the, in, the, in the horizontal, everyone has a place and bring something to the party of, of life, mm-hmm. to the community, the tasks of life. Yeah, it's interesting, because, do you have something to say? I know, no. go for it. I was, it's thinking, I was thinking that growing up, you kind of seem, you feel that the only system is the vertical system. It just felt like yeah. we live in this competitive world. And then when I became aware that the best way for everyone to succeed is if we all treat each other like equals and succeed together and build this horizontal system, I felt like I was, sort of like an outlier amongst uh-huh. everyone else my age. And is there a way to exist in a f- very comfortable horizontal system while the people around you are acting vertically? Of course. Yeah. Uh, modeling is the most powerful way we change our behaviors. Mm. Um, without, without cooperation, we could not specialize. Mm. Uh, 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 doctors would all be general practitioners and, or they'd have to know everything about it, brain surgery you know, to pediatrics to everything else in between mm. this way um, we are allowed to specialize because of, of cooperation 
we're, we're able to, to, in fact, it's cooperation is what makes the world move forward, evolve, grow. Nature cooperates. Nature's, nature is an ecological system in which all parts work together for the benefit and health mm. of, the, of, the, of nature. Even the parts nature. that seem like they wouldn't fit together find ways to fit together and cooperate. Absolutely. Interesting. I think the thing about the, uh, the horizontal plane for me is it, it, it's not conducive to jealousy. It doesn't, it's, uh, if somebody is successful, you, why, it doesn't help you to be jealous of them, their success. It, you should be happy for their success because and, and we're all on this same horizontal plane and we all have mutual respect for one another. One, mm. of, the, one of the issues is that, uh, and what you're saying is how we define success. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, I just did an activity. I was teaching a course on cultural diversity yesterday uh, for the university, master's level students in counseling. And uh, I gave them a list of some of the things in our paradigm of how our society, and the one thing that came up as the number one thing was the success is equal to financial success mm. and the status that goes with that. Whereas... <laughs> Uh, I, as I pointed out to them in the, uh, say, the classical Greece, uh, oral culture, mind you, a successful man was a man who could recite the Iliad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's entirely different. Yes. I, um, I've often heard it said that success is, no matter where you are financially or socially, success is if you're happy with where it is. Would you say that that seems reasonable well uh, there's a great book uh I, I i have no connection to this person but they wrote a book called the stitlich and he wrote a book called the hacking of the american mind and he makes the a real good point of the distinction between dopamine system and serotonin system mm. so dopamine is the immediate reward system uh our, when we, our phone buzzes it generates a little dopamine well, all kinds of things create dopamine for us and uh What's happened is that somewhere along the way, his contention is that, that uh, uh, the larger uh, uh, corporation, corporate community has realized that by linking uh, happiness and pleasure together, the dopamine and the serotonin systems together, uh, we can do better financially and, and it's worked. But the real issue is that, um, that um, serotonin is, leads to genuine growth, contentment, and happiness is what you're asking. Mm. Whereas uh, dopamine generally leads just to an immediate reward system, mm. which eventually burns out. And so we need more and more of that dopamine to get the same buzz, which because we start to burn out the receptors. And then over time, we become addicted because we need more and more and more. It leads to an addictive kind of personality or behavior. Yeah, so we need to look for these long-term serotonin-inducing lifestyles yes. as compared to looking for that next dopamine hit. Right. In fact, uh, there's a fellow called uh, Dr. Acosta from in California, and he was a psychologist, and he was looking at, at the original NASA program that put the man on the moon. And he examined all the people that were uh, in the program from all over the world. They came together as scientists. And he was looking to see if they had anything in common. And the one thing he found about them all that they had in common was the skill, as he called it, of persistence. Number one skill in life. They try something, it didn't work. They tweak it again, they try it, it didn't work. They try it, and eventually they tweak it and get it right. And that gets back to the idea of encouragement versus discouragement. They weren't getting immediate rewards, which is a reward and punishment system and a praise system. 
Um, they, were, they were kept going because they had enough courage, enough persistence to keep going till they got it right. And out of that comes a great deal of happiness, satisfaction, and growth mm. for us all. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's definitely that's definitely words to live by, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think that a lot of people have this idea that a happy lifestyle means that you you never struggle, but I believe a happy lifestyle is consistently dealing with struggle and not letting it take you off your path of striving for your, the things that you want. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Maybe um, I agree, maybe I disagree. Interesting. Uh, I think I understand uh, that that as um on one level, uh, life is a flow. Nature's flows. And so if you're in the flow of nature, there is less struggle. It's when we get out of touch with our own nature that we are put in the place of struggle often. I, for example, I, I think that pain is just part of life, and I would agree with that part. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, suffering is optional. Yes. It's something we generate in our mind, and we amplify in our mind, and we make this big thing in our heads. Uh, we're a long way from parenting right now, but yeah. I think it somehow fits into an overall view that um, what's important is that uh, we, we allow children to try things and encourage them to keep working at it. And as an example of your drawing, the, your, your, in the improvement in your drawing from one day to the next, and that we acknowledge that improvement. So mm. we appreciate your efforts, we acknowledge your improvements, mm-hmm. and you're likely to move forward in a more encouraged way and be more persistent in your behavior. So how are we doing for time at the moment? With uh, how long have we been? We're good. It's We're good? been just a, just about probably fifty minutes. Fifty? Yeah. All yeah. right. Do you want to go for another ten? Do it. Do a round out a round out a solid hour then? Sure. I sure. I had a question for you sure. specifically, Stephen. For actually. sure. Yeah. Ask mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if. Growing up with parents who were learning Adlerian principles while they were raising you, yeah. if you noticed a difference as a child between the way your parents were raising you and the way your friends' parents were raising them? Well, in, I mean, in retrospect, it's funny because I remember my parents telling me things along the lines of what Jim's saying. Yeah. You know, my mom was saying, you know, she'd always say, it doesn't matter what you're doing as long as you're moving forward, which mm-hmm. I think is a big, mm-hmm. a big horizontal plane as opposed yep. to a vertical plane. Yeah. And, uh, and just the, and just, yeah, I think, I think that, I think that it was quite effective. I mean, I, th- I think one of the biggest things was just getting together in a group, finding a community with other parents and bouncing ideas off of one another. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, it, you can't parent in a vacuum. You need to talk to other parents you need to like get see what they're doing with their children and then you know if you can get them all together and i i you know i found i definitely saw the uh i definitely saw a positive impact on on because i think there's a lot of parents that just think that it'll come naturally Mm. and they don't want to put that that effort into creating that community and that effort into bettering their parenting style Mm. and i don't think a lot of parents want to admit that they need to better their parenting style yeah. Right, because they're like, this is my kid. He, you know, he came from me. I, I can do it the way I want to do it. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that's part of the one of the barriers for people thinking of coming to a parenting class. Like, why are you in a parenting class? I thought your kids were perfect. No, they're not. And yes, they're close to perfect. And <laughs> yeah, uh, right. And so uh, I'm here because 
I'm trying to change some things that I'm doing. For example, I'm trying to move away from using fear or punishment as a way of controlling my child and trying to move towards consequences, which are based on principles of being reasonable, related, uh, kind of respectful, and of course reliably enforced, the four R's of a consequence. So they need to be reasonable. They can't be, you know, uh, uh, putting the kid, locking him in his room for two weeks for um, being late for dinner. Yeah. That's not reasonable. Or it needs to be related. You left your bike behind the car, and therefore you're going to, again, you're going to have to miss dinner for two days versus you left your bicycle behind, you know, the SUV, and I couldn't see it. It was lucky I was came around and saw it before I got into the SUV, and therefore you're showing me you're not ready to ride your bike, We'll put it away for two days, and we'll see if you're ready in two days. Yeah. Mm. Better than just running it over on purpose. Yes. (laughs) No bike for you. No bike. (laughs) No bike for you. Yeah. So the point being is is you have to make it reasonable, and you have to make it related, and, of course, respectful. What do you think would be a reasonable number of days for your bike to go away, Stephen? Um, You know what? I think an hour and a half. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking a week. Yeah. Uh, So how about... Come back with another offer. <laughs> that, well, that was the thing. My, I, I, now that I think about it, now that I think in retrospect, there was a lot of conversations like that for me growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, so what do you think should be your punishment? No punishment, right? No punishment. And it's like, all right, well, that's not logical. That's not reasonable. What do you think should be your punishment? And then it, it also just it, I, it made me think about what I did, what I did wrong. And instead of being like, yeah, instead of overthinking what I did wrong, I thought just, like, I gave j- the right amount of mental effort to how, like, how, okay, how severe was it? I get to choose how severe it was, and I get to think about how to move forward. Yeah, so it's not, ba- it's based on your own rational rationalization or rational thinking rather than on fear. Yeah. Mm. Which so much of what punishment's about is about fear. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a question regarding you, you've been practicing this for how many years? Like 30? Yeah, 30 plus. Yeah. What was the most common thing that you saw parents doing incorrectly when you started? And what is the most common thing now? And has it shifted? I think initially I would... Yes, great. Wonderful question. It's a great actually. question. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, because it's at the very heart of it. Mm. Uh, and, it's, and my perceptions are not just mine. They, uh, 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 a woman... Uh, uh, Eva Dreikers Ferguson in, uh, in at Stanford University, her research would back up what I've been saying before I heard about her research. And that is that North America is basically autocratic. Mm. You know, I'll tell you what to do, you will do it, and that's a good son. If you don't do it, you'll be disobedient and you'll be punished. That was traditional way, and 30 years ago, that's sort of where it was. Then it shifted to um, uh, a place uh, of of do your own thing, you know that was a big thing, and then laissez-faire, laissez-faire, and then within that laissez-faire, there was some, we're going to manage it somewhat from the helicopter point of view. We're going to we're going to hover around to make sure that you are in that. And now, of course, what we're seeing is the bulldozer parent who just plows the way so their kid can come through life as smoothly as possible, and you get mm. that kind of entitled. Meant it's showing the up. The bulldozer so parent. That's a that's, that's interesting. an interesting term. So yeah. the shift has gone from uh, from autocratic to kind of laissez faire. Mm. 
Mm. And, and uh, yeah, and so that's kind of what's happened in the world. Mm. Not just here in North America. It's happened big in places like China. It's out of control, which is why Adlerian principles are being just embraced in China, probably more than anywhere in the world. And, of course, it, the same thing's going on in Europe. I just came from that. Same oh, wow. stuff that's going on that's going on here. Interesting. So it's about learning to cre- have those, the knowledge and how to create the structure that is respectful, that is reasonable, that's relatable to the kid, and that they're involved in the creating of that structure, which is a democratic way. So we're raising children to be rational, not just fear-based. I'm behaving because I'm afraid of the punishment. I'm behaving this way because it's, it's reasonable. Mm. So uh, I switched the language from good behavior and bad behavior, which is that vertical thing we're talking about at the beginning, to useful or useless. So it fits into more of a social context. Does your behavior, is it useful? There's nothing intrinsically morally bad about running through grandma's living room with all her trinkets, (laughs) but it's not very useful. (laughs) Could you say that's more of a pragmatic approach? Pragmatism, which I would say is part of it, mm-hmm. yes, as long as it sits within the democratic principles, yes. I really like the language of useful and useless behavior because it just, yeah, it once again kind of puts, like, it's not just saying don't do this and not explaining it. It yeah. allows the child to make their own realizations about what the bigger picture yeah. of their actions are. Exactly. And allows them to yeah. feel like they're rational. Right? Yes. It allows them to feel like they are logical and rational people as well and not just need, need to be controlled. Uh, exactly. And the other deeper thing is that suddenly you feel respected and that makes you feel like you belong. Ah. Mm. And then it helps you take you off that vertical thing and puts you onto the horizontal. Wow. Beautiful. I, like the, I really like the imagery of vertical and horizontal. It's just so clear in the mind. I think a lot of the listeners here will probably leave with that as one of the main things that they remember from this podcast. I, I mean, I remember when I first read, read that in the uh, parenting handbook, and I, uh-huh. I went over it, and I, was, I thought about what my parents had told me, and, 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 I was, and it just I always keep it with me now. Right. I kind of keep it in my back pocket yeah. to, yeah. to kind of remind myself to not like, let myself get, get discouraged when I feel like, I've come down a few rungs in the ladder because yeah. I haven't come down a few rungs in the ladder. I'm just detoured a little from my horizontal forward path. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, you know, we we don't have time today, but uh, probably for a future podcast is the whole idea of the of the of the goals of of misbehavior. What why a child misbehaves, and uh, there are specific reasons why they misbehave and weak and mistaken. Children are wonderful observers, but. Lousy interpreters. <laughs> I think. I think one of our. I think one of our topics in the future should definitely be kind of goal-oriented thinking as well, yeah. just in general, because yeah. that was something that also struck me mm. when I read the uh, the parenting handbook. I'm going to give the parenting handbook to to Autumn, and he can take a, a quick yeah. leaf. Yeah, you can it. have a look. Through. I, I, the thing is, that Adler would say we're not being pushed by genetics. We're not being pushed by our social situation. We're being pulled by our vision, mm. our goal. Oh. So it's not a. It's not a push. It's being pulled. We're, by something we have invented, we created our own fiction. Mm. We create a fiction. Yeah. And it's something that I tell my students is that, is that, uh, uh, that uh, you know, sort of uh, imagination is reality and everything else conforms to it. Mm. Uh, uh, I heard that from a fellow called a poet that was at Simon Fraser uh, in residence there, uh, Robin Blazer. That was one of the lines I picked up from 
talking to him. It's interesting. It's like you create your own reality based upon what you decide you want your future to be, your goal. You therefore live your life with that in mind. Right, because you never get to the future. The future is just a metaphor for the human imagination. Yeah. We actually never get there. The future yeah. is a metaphor for the human imagination. I love that. That's a good sentence. Yeah. yeah. That's true. Yeah, you will never get there. The only yeah. moment that you can exist in is now. Once you get to the future, it is the now, and therefore the future is uh, now. Just it's, it's sad that our, our fictions keep us out of being in the present. Mm-hmm. It's either we're worrying about the past or we have anxiety about the future, and, and anxiety really is about belonging in the future. How are we going to belong in the future? Back to what I described earlier, Monk talking about the younger people in their uh, late teens and in their 20s, is that whole anxiety that's emerging, uh, which is just about wanting to belong. And part of it is the loss or the thinning out of community in a genuine sense of community, Mm. as we've been talking about in that compassionate sense. Interesting. Um, Do you have any final question to wrap it up? no, just a just a couple statements. I was just I was just saying that this. I think this is a quite successful first stab at this podcast. Absolutely. I think we're doing quite well, and I'm I really enjoyed this conversation for today. Me too. And uh, I can't wait to start thinking up topics for the next couple months. Me too. Because yeah. we've got. Uh, it's just going to be. I, I'm just really excited about it. Yeah, I think this is a great conversation. I, I'm hoping that we get. Uh, I can also be more uh, practical in some ways of taking these loftier ideas we've been just talking about today and start and start what is that when you did distill it down to the role of a parent uh even uh, as a partner in a relationship uh, or even with yourself how how does that how do you get to take those ideas and move forward with them mm-hmm. i have one little question for you but sure. to end it off yeah. um what are some things that you have been thinking about a new idea that you are learning about right now that we might want to touch on next time that the listeners can maybe do their own research on? Uh, let's see, that question, good question. I would say what, what I'm starting to look at uh, more deeply is um, how do we help create spaces for community to emerge? How do we do that in a practical way? Mm. I really believe that we're uh, uh, grieving collectively because we don't have those places to, to form genuine connection, genuine intimate connection with each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm very interested in that topic. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Excellent. Thank you, gentlemen. That was fun. That was oh, very it was fun. very fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for listening. We will see you next month. Woo!